We are in church, so we might as well be honest. This is one weird Bible story. You can use another term if you prefer, but it's weird. And maybe lots of Bible stories are weird. Maybe we've been reading this abnormal book so long that we're no longer stunned by it. No longer. We just yawn our way through the weird ones. You know, for instance, there's a story in one of the other Gospels where Jesus sees a fig tree with no fruit on it and he curses it and it dies, which is kind of weird, except the gospel writer says it wasn't the season for figs. What? What? That's weird. How could Jesus curse a tree for not bearing fruit when it's not supposed to be bearing fruit? Or how about this one? You know, there are lots of stories of healing of blind people. Jesus heals a blind man and says, okay, what do you think? And he says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. I'm not making this up. That's in the Bible. They look like trees. So he tries again, and it works. That's weird. There are lots of others. I don't know where you would put this one, but it's weird. The thing is, it starts off normal for first century stories about Jesus. I mean, he's been teaching his disciples. That's normal. That's what Jesus does. Turn the pages. That's what he does. He decides to retreat for a while, go up a mountain to pray. You read through the Gospels and go, yep, yep, check, normal. That's what Jesus does. He even takes with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the the leadership team. They're on retreat. Normal, yep, good. And then it goes weird. His face changes. His clothes become dazzling white. It's like a Clorox commercial or a scene from E.T. This, this is not normal. Most days, Jesus got up, got dressed, ate some breakfast, taught the disciples, and if he went off to pray, it's not like people from the Old Testament showed up. In fact, this is the only time that happens. It's just strange. And so Peter, in the midst of this strangeness, proposes, says something like this. This isn't quite the Greek. This is so cool. Can we make monuments here and just stay? It's kind of like a first century version of Mount Rushmore. Let's just stay here. We'll make big statues. This is amazing. And I love how Luke says he didn't even know what he was saying. Did you hear that part? Not knowing what he said. He's just talking. And then the voice out of the cloud, that's not normal, says, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And then it all just goes away. And it says they didn't talk about that in those days. (laughs) Well, I guess not. How do you talk about that? But Peter, you've got to imagine that Peter, maybe he makes it two, three days, but he says to the others, you know, about the other day on the mountain, we don't want to talk about it. In those days, they didn't talk about it. You might be wondering why in these days we're talking about it. What does this have to do with us? Well, it's a tradition that on the Sunday before the beginning of Lent, you read this story, But more than that, all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell this story. Matthew, Matthew says, well, it was a vision. That helps, doesn't it? You know, just chalk it up to a bad dream or something like that. 
I don't, I don't know how many of you remember your dreams. I go months without remembering dreams, so that's probably why I'm fascinated with dreams. But I don't know if you remember um, a little book called Einstein's Dreams. It's by Alan Lightman. Some of you might recognize that name. He's the only person uh, appointed in both humanities and the sciences at MIT. And in Einstein's dreams, he takes both of those gifts and sort of weaves it together. It's, it's, it's a piece of fiction, but it's rooted in the true life story of Einstein. And Einstein, if you don't know, was in his 20s working part-time in a patent office. But in his spare time, he was working on the theory of relativity, how time works. That's what most of us do in our spare time, right? It's a little hobby. No, but Einstein, right? So he takes this true life thing, and then what he does is he imagines that every night as Einstein's head hits the pillow, he has a different dream. Each one, a, a kind of alternative way time might work. In one, there's an ant on the rim of a chandelier just crawling around. Well, you know it's just going to keep going around and around. It's one theory of time that it just sort of repeats itself. Maybe we're all on some big cosmic chandelier just walking around. In another one, the time moves faster at lower altitudes. So everybody scurries to the mountains, and even in the mountains they build their homes on stilts trying to slow it down. In another time just stand still. There, there are raindrops falling, but they just hang there. And people in an embrace, they're just stuck in this embrace. All of them dreams about time. And it turns out that's what this story in Luke's gospel is about, time. It starts with a little phrase, now eight days after these sayings. And so it's timed in relationship to what Jesus has been teaching down in the valley before they go up in the mountain. And what Jesus had been teaching was really pretty straightforward. I'm going to die and be raised again. So tradition has it that on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday in the beginning of Lent that you go up on the mountain with Jesus because if you go up on a mountain, you can see further ahead. You, if you look, if you look out far enough, you can see Easter. You can see it. The crocus is coming up and the people in their beautiful outfits and the hymns and the alleluias. If you go up on the mountain, you can see. But, but if you look in between here and there, you see Lent. But not just Lent. It's not just the time of the 40 days. You know, if we can just hunker down and make it through this, we'll get to East. It's really more symbolic of the lifelong journey, of the resurrection promised in a future that is not yet totally realized. This semester at the seminary, I'm teaching a graduate senior seminar. These folks are about to graduate, and they're about to do their oral exams for ordination. And so it's a way to prepare them. But while they're going to be asked a lot of questions, this class is focusing primarily on one. I guess the easy way to say it is, what time is it? It doesn't mean on your watch. But when the church gathers in worship, we are both anticipating a future, but we are living in the present. That's where we are. That's what time it really is. 
You know, you, you read and you say, well, you, there'll be a day when nations no longer go to war. But they sure do now. There'll be a day when you don't need Kleenex. No more tears. But you can bet there are tears now. It reminds me of the story of John Newton, who famously wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Maybe you know the story. The version I always heard goes something like this. John Newton was a slave trader, and he was at sea with the slaves down below, and a storm came up, and he had a religious conversion that if if God could get him through this, well, the storm abated, and he turned his life and the ship around and eventually wrote that great hymn about how he was once blind and now can see. You heard that version before, something like that? It's not quite right. It's true he was a slave trader. It's true that he was caught in a storm at sea and he was desperate and he had this religious conversion and it's true he turned his life around but not the ship. He didn't turn the ship around. For 30 more years after converting, he kept trading slaves. And while he was transporting Up on deck, he would extol mighty God, debate scripture with the crew, look at the beautiful stars, and ignore the hundreds of people below, many of them dying from malaria. It's very symbolic. We don't... We don't want to go through Lent, not just because it's 40 days without chocolate or 40 days of looking at the way our lives are maybe as inconsistent as Newton's. It's not just that. It's the fact that when you're up on the mountain and you can see resurrection, not just this Easter, not just this April, but you can see resurrection out there that you know in between life is parched. I was trying to get this across in that class and one of the analogies I came up with that has stuck with me for so many years now is from the end of Schindler's List. You remember that great movie? Oscar Schindler, German businessman, figures out a way to work the system and and through a a kind of financial arrangement manages to get, get Jews out. And at the end of the movie... Many of those whom he saved, over a thousand, are are standing there outside. They've made it to safety. And so you're supposed to feel good, right? But but, but there's six million who are going to die. So you're supposed to feel sad. Well, not not exactly. It's it's this in-between place. And remember, he's got this lapel pin, and he looks at it, and he goes... What do I need a pen for? I could have sold it. I could have got somebody else out. And they go, no, no, no. You did good. You did all you could. And he goes, no, I didn't. And he's talking about his car. He could have sold his car. You don't know how to feel at the end of Schindler's List. That's where we live. The last two Saturdays, I endured and enjoyed a marathon of watching the nine nominated best pictures. Ah, yes. And for those who are up on the movies, you know, tonight's the Oscars, what we want is La La Land, and what we have 
is Manchester by the sea and lion and fences and everything else. That's where we are. If that's too current, what we want is the sound of music. What we have is saving Private Ryan or the Godfather. You name it. This is where we live. This is how we tell time. In that book, Lightman imagines these 20 or so dreams that Einstein has. The one that stands out for me is dated June the 2nd, 1905. This is how the dream begins. A mushy brown peach is taken out of the garbage in the kitchen and put on the counter. And it starts to pinken and harden. It's put in a sack, taken to the grocers, put on a shelf, removed and put in a crate and trucked to an orchard where it's put on a tree and where shortly thereafter blossoms begin to appear. The dream ends like this. A woman stands at the grave of her husband. She feels the cold April rain slap against her cheeks. She has a handful of dirt that she throws on the coffin, but she doesn't cry. She doesn't cry in this dream because she remembers how just three days from now he'll sit up in the hospital bed. And he'll say, I'm starting to feel a little better. He'll start to have enough energy to walk the halls. And before you know it, he checks out. They go home. They go for a walk. They make love. They go see a movie. She doesn't cry because she remembers a day when he will be new. But for now... For now, she waits. And so do we.